Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will turn focus back to thematic investing as we will revisit the space economy and touch on some recent developments as well as investment considerations. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Michelle Liberty, thematic investing strategist for the Americas, as well as Nathaniel Gabriel, industrials analyst for the Americas, both from the UBS Chief Investment Office. Michelle, Nathaniel, great to be with you both. Thank you for dropping by top of the morning. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for having us. So, Michelle, I know you've joined us in the past to talk about the space economy. In the latest update to the theme, uh, the publication cites how the space economy is at an inflection point. So, Michelle, as a starting point, can you tell us a bit more about the thesis behind this long-term investment as a refresher and maybe speak to the developments that have been made to the space economy and how the theme is more viable? Sure. Thanks, Dan. Um, There's certainly been plenty of developments related to the space industry in the last couple of years, um, from the advent of the first U.S. Space Force in 2019 uh, to the first all-civilian flight to space. So definitely an exciting uh, couple of years, but in terms of the developments or what's changed that makes us believe that we're at an inflection point, um, we point to four things. Uh, Strong private sector funding, advancements in technology, uh, growth in new space applications, and importantly, and I'll I'll emphasize this one, uh, significantly lower launch costs. And a couple of those things are related, right? The technological advancements have helped drive down costs. Um, But first, I'll just start with private sector funding. Uh, And I had mentioned the Space Force earlier, but much of the space economy doesn't necessarily need to rely on government spending anymore. Um, you think about something like tourism, because several of the world's uh, you know, largest or, or richest billionaires have taken a significant interest in this space and have actually invested you know, pretty large sums into either their own companies or into the industry more broadly. Now, of course, that's also garnered some criticism from some, uh, but it does help to support the development of the industry, especially for the parts of the industry that are in the more uh, instant stages where uh, ample access to, to funding can be critical. The second and third piece um, I'll put together here just because we've seen technological advancement, for example, you know, reusing the first stage of the rocket that's helped drive costs down and it's opened up potential opportunity for space applications that may not have been as economically feasible in the past. So I'll get to this a bit later when we talk about some of the new age space economy. Um, but finally, lower launch costs is part of it, again, just comes from that technological advancement. But to put some numbers around it, you know, when, inju- when adjusting for inflation, some of the earliest uh, rockets had launch costs of more than $100,000 uh, per kilogram of payload. Today, it's closer to about $10,000, uh, depending on the size, of, the size of the load. So with this drastic decline in cost, you know, we've seen a number of opportunities arise alongside it. Quite a lot there as the space economy continues to evolve. So thank you, Michelle, for highlighting what's new. And we'll dig into this a bit deeper. Uh, Nathaniel, to welcome you into the conversation, some aspects of the space economy are already well underway. Satellite communication in particular comes to mind. So running with that a bit further, Nathaniel, can you explain how we use satellites currently and how they can be used in the future? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks very much. Good morning, Dan. Uh, you're absolutely right that, that satellites already facilitate how the world operates as we know it today. 
uh, especially when it comes to communication, which is still very much the, the main focus of, of the satellite industry as it stands now. Um, but technology here is, is still evolving very quickly. Uh, I think we're all pretty familiar at this point with satellites providing things like weather and TV and radio and broadband Internet. Uh, a lot of those technologies have, have been around for years or decades at this point. Um, but there's becoming a much greater focus on using satellite networks to provide Internet access to areas that uh, just aren't easily served by traditional providers. Uh, and that can be you know, rural broadband in the U.S. or, or supporting critical infrastructure in Ukraine. Uh, on the autonomous vehicle side as well, we're already seeing satellites being launched to help supply cars with more precise positioning data. Uh, and while I, I think we're clearly many years away from widespread adoption of self-driving passenger cars, uh, we could see the automotive industry become a larger user of satellite capacity as we progress from the testing to deployment of, of later stage, more autonomous vehicles. Uh, we're also seeing some pretty rapid technological development in other areas like autonomous trucks, uh, drones, and, and urban air mobi mobility vehicles. Um, those will all require pretty significant amounts of navigational data as well. Uh, and, you know, as, as everything from consumer devices to industrial equipment in the field becomes more and more connected, and we'll need that data coverage to link it all together, especially where some of the ground-based 5G networks can't reliably reach. So, you know, one of the most efficient ways to accomplish all of this is to have hundreds or thousands of relatively low-cost satellites uh, that connect with each other in low Earth orbit, and they work together as a unit to provide global coverage. Uh, you know, on the positive side, these are, are close to the Earth, so they can provide pretty relatively low latency, high-speed communications. Uh, but the downside is also that they travel very quickly around the planet, so we need a lot of them to provide that consistent service. Uh, and as Michelle mentioned, we have both private commercial and military entities uh, in various stages of, of building out these constellations. Uh, we could see some 50,000 of these small satellites operating uh, over the next decade. Uh, and, of course, we'll, we'll need continued investments in ground-based equipment as well, things like receivers and network infrastructure, uh, just to keep the whole system running smoothly. To touch on, on how the business model is changing as well, um, you know, it used to be that if you were a satellite company, for example, uh, you wanted to have access to a satellite, you would pay to contract a company to build a satellite to your specifications, uh, then you'd need to get launch insurance, and then you'd pay a very significant amount for that satellite to be launched. Uh, clearly an onerous process that boxed out a lot of smaller participants. So, you know, what we're seeing now is, is that some operators are increasingly providing satellite as a service, you know, basically allowing the customers to lease bandwidth on the satellite network as needed uh, and basically swap out that major upfront expenditure for smaller payments for usage only. Uh, so that's that's been a positive for, for smaller users as well. From an operating standpoint, it sounds like a lot goes into it. So very interesting to hear about that. And Nathaniel, it does sound like more broadly a lot of opportunity with respect to satellite use and the continued expansion of it. I do want to talk about the fence a bit, Nathaniel. I know the fence falls into your coverage of U.S. industrials. Michelle had mentioned the Space Force a bit earlier in the conversation. So how does space fit in with international security? Yeah, a great question, Dan, and I think it's clear that space is becoming more critical to international security by the day. Uh, you know, we know that major world powers have fought for superiority in, in space since the space race in the 50s and 60s, but it, it certainly hasn't stopped there. Uh, and now space is broadly seen as a military domain on par with, with sea and land and air. Um, and we're seeing funding ramp up to support military capabilities there. Uh, we think that's likely to remain a, a very high priority for militaries around the world. 
uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, here in the U.S., uh, you know, we did break out that portion of military operations in, uh, in 2019, uh, establishing the Space Force. You know, this is a very high priority in the defense budget. And when we look at, at President Biden's fiscal 23 budget request, uh, it includes a 40 percent year-over-year increase in funding specifically for the Space Force. Uh, NATO is, is kind of following along. They also declared space a domain of, of military operations. Uh, they've established a dedicated space center in Germany, uh, space center of excellence in France. Uh, you know, these will help serve as a centralized resources for NATO as a whole. Uh, and, and those are getting up and running very quickly. And, and of course, Russia and China have space-focused military divisions as well, though details there are a little harder to come by. Um, but for the U.S. and its allies, you know, I would say the major priorities are establishing very reliable satellite-supported high-speed communication and navigation, uh, and also developing a more capable defense against missile attack, uh, especially given the, the advent of hypersonic missiles, which can be more maneuverable and, and fly lower than ballistic missiles and therefore are, are much harder to track. Um, just touching on the communication side first, uh, the U.S. Space Development Agency is working on a constellation of, of dedicated military satellites, uh, very similar to what we were talking about on the commercial side. Uh, and this will eventually be a network of, of around 300 to 500 satellites that will provide secure high-speed data to around 99% of the globe. Uh, and so that will, of course, be available to the ground soldiers, but it will also be compatible with fighter jets and missile defense systems. Uh, and the first batch of those satellites is scheduled to be delivered in, in 2024. And, you know, one big benefit of setting up the structure this way is that every few years, a few of the older satellites can be retired and new ones set on, sent up. Uh, and so you have this consistent improvement in, in things like data throughput and encryption over time. Uh, and on the missile defense side, uh, the U.S. is developing uh, what it calls the overhead persistent infrared system, which is not quite the catchiest name, but uh, it's made up of five satellites in, in various orbits that detect the infrared signature of a missile launch very precisely. Uh, and those are scheduled to go up into space between 2025 and 2030. Um, the idea would be that once a missile is detected, ideally very early thanks to this new technology, um, you know, a separate constellation of satellites will activate, it will monitor the missile's flight path, and then send coordinates for inter interception. So, uh, you know, finally, just I, I do think it's important to point out that technology in space clearly adds tremendous value to military operations. Um, but the satellites themselves are relatively vulnerable. It's not particularly difficult to track objects in orbit. You know, obviously there's a potential for a direct missile hit or a cyber attack, you know, various ways to disable a satellite. Um, and so, you know, it's very important for space-based assets to be as resilient as possible, but also, you know, keep weight down as much as possible, given the, the high cost of launching them. A lot there to keep us up at night. As we know, geopolitical tensions around the world not exactly easing. So the defense component of the space economy is something to keep an eye on. Thank you, Nathaniel, for breaking that out for us a bit there. Uh, Michelle, to welcome you back into the conversation as we begin to wrap up this morning, I do want to cite how the publication does conclude with a section on the new age space economy. Uh, this includes space tour tourism, and space-based solar power. So, Michelle, can you tell us how far along are these industries? Are we going to be taking any space vacations anytime soon? And are there any takeaways here for investors? Hi, sure. Uh, thanks, Ian. This is the, the exciting stuff, right? When we say new age space economy, 
we're referring to the pockets of the space economy that are realistically the highest risk, uh, least proven, and probably the farthest away from coming to commercial fruition. Uh, but in recent years, you know, these ideas that were once considered something like science fiction has started to become a bit more realistic due to some of the catalysts that I spoke about earlier. So as you know, our, our report does focus on two major topics within the new age space economy, uh, space tourism and space-based solar power. So starting with the tourism piece, um, this is very close to fruition. In fact, there are already paying customers uh, signed up and ready to go, uh, and several companies involved in the space have run a number of test flights. For investors, I think what's important to consider is the very high risk of delays uh, and potentially even failure. We've already seen a number of successful flights, but we've also seen consistent delays. And all it really will take is one significant failure that could really shake consumer confidence here. So that's going to remain a risk. But we do think there's potential for this industry to scale up and become uh, more profitable in the years ahead. At this time, we haven't seen any significant takeaways for, say, more traditional hospitality and leisure companies, uh, but it is possible we see more partnerships in the future here. Uh, and we'll likely see the space tourism companies also offer commercial launch services to help expand their market because you have to remember that ticket prices can vary uh, pretty widely right now, but they're still targeting a small portion of the population that can actually afford going to space. Um, and in the essence of time, I suppose I'll move on now to, to space-based solar power. And I should be clear that this industry is still in the research phase, so this is by no means a profitable or scaled industry. So I just want to make that clear for the investors listening. Um, and the idea has been around for quite some time. And that's because there are some substantial benefits that could be had here. Um, Space-based solar could potentially correct uh, solar power's main obstacle here on Earth, and that's consistency. But for a while, it really just seemed like this was merely science fiction with no real prospects of coming to fruition, mainly because of the economics and the technology. So if we think back 10, 20 years, uh, solar power itself was a lot more expensive than it is now, even here on Earth, and then pair that with the higher launch costs, and it really just wasn't feasible. But we're seeing a renewed interest in this with two of those problems addressed. So in fact, we've seen the UK, uh, the European Space Agency, NASA, researchers in China as well, are all working on research projects related to space-based solar power. And unfortunately, there are numerous challenges, as one might imagine. Of course, the technology is still being developed, so we'll need to see greater proof of concept. And for that reason alone, we, we view picking any individual winners here as highly speculative. So it is exciting. Um, we're certainly keeping an eye on it, but it's simply too soon to, to pick winners here. Thank you, Michelle. Well, it is fascinating to see these developments take shape with much progress ahead of us. I do encourage our listeners, especially our clients of UBS, to read further into these latest developments within the space economy long-term investment theme publication update, which we have been making reference to this morning during our conversation. Uh, the publication can now be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. If you 
you are a client of UBS, simply reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy directly. Though, Michelle, Nathaniel, uh, thank you again for dropping by top of the morning to share with us the latest developments around the space economy theme. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for having us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.